Well, we can see the finishing line, but still there is no clear winner. Politics Weekly has come to the end of its journey with our final roadshow here in London in the bowels of King's Place, a mere two floors beneath our very own newsroom. I'm Tom Clark. And I'm Allegra Stratton. Joining us to look back over the most tightly contested election in years are three of The Guardian and Observer's luminaries. They've been listening to and commenting on every intentional and unintentional party broadcast along the way. So we have Polly Toynbee, who is fresh from the Brown Battle Bus. Or, Polly, do you feel fresh after being on the Brown Battle Bus? Very unfresh, indeed. One, one sandwich, very long journey. Just come from Wrexham. After this, I'm getting back on the train to join them again in Leeds. Andrew, I don't think you've been on a single Battle Bus. I have been on a Battle Bus. <laughs> oh, really? Far yes, on. I've been on, for instance, David Cameron's campaign coach, as I think the Conservatives prefer <laughs> to call it. And we went out to... Thurrock, home of Essex man and woman, where he was campaigning in a Labour marginal, and I interviewed him in... There's a rear section of David Cameron's campaign coach, which has got these black leather sofas. It's a bit like a sort of younger Bond villain might occupy, which some of Cameron's staff call the love pod. Um, And I won't add anything more than that. (laughs) And last but not least, we've got... The Guardian's very own troubadour and musical scribbler, John Harris. And John, can we just ask you if you had to pick up a song, think of a song that sums up the campaign today, what would it be? Oh, I've made, I, I was at home at the weekend and I made this CD ready for what my darker side suggests is looking increasingly likely a Tory government. And the CD that I could just put on and weep to, really. Which had various uh, works of maudlin music on it. The song that I've been around the country for the paper... Um, going around various constituencies and, and looking at conditions on the ground, so to speak. And there's one song um, which has r- occurred to me time and again, really, especially when I was in the north of England. This is, I, this is not funny at all. There's a song by a group called Doves, who are from the part of the world that I'm from, called Kingdom of Rust. And uh, when you're in uh, post-industrial Scotland or the northeast of England or large swathes of Yorkshire and stuff, that's the song that keeps popping back into your head. Okay, well, right, down to business. We've ended each of our roadshows so far by asking you for precise numerical predictions. We're going to give you a last chance to make a fool of yourself, John. What would you say? Uh, Well, like I say, I'm starting to feel very depressed and maudlin about the whole thing. Part of me thinks that this country hasn't changed much. Numbers, John. And what the sun says still goes, so I think they might get a majority of about 10 or 11. Well, the Lib Dems. Yeah, the Lib Dems. (laughs) (laughs) Tory government majority 11, they are. (laughs) Andrew's butted in, so Andrew has the honour next. Um, I'm old enough to have been in Sheffield for the Sheffield rally, and some of you will remember that as well, where, I mean, I remember watching John Cole, the very venerable, good friend of mine, political editor of the BBC, that night's news bulletin, even comparing Neil Kinnock at that rally to John F. Kennedy, and most of the opinion polls at that stage, with just a few days to go before that 1992 election, had Labour about seven points ahead of the Conservatives. I always felt and so did a few other people, to be fair, that there was something slightly not right about that. And in my water, I wondered whether the Tories were coming back. And so they did, against not only the predictions of most of the opinion pollsters, but nearly all of the Conservative cabinet of the time, John Major was re-elected with a majority of 21, which is a roundabout way of saying I'm not such a big mug in such an unpredictable election to come up with some forecast which will make me look utterly stupid by Friday morning. But I do make this prediction without fear of contradiction that whoever is in in number 10 will have not won 50% of the popular vote 
or anything like it. And I think this election, above all of recent elections, will highlight the complete craziness isn't it of first past the vote. Isn't it good we pay soothsayers to come up with that kind of prediction? Come on, we must be able to do a bit better than the, the winning party. It sounded get like you were giving Brown a majority of 21. No, I wasn't giving yes. anybody a majority of 21. Cheat. No. Polly, go on. All right. Put him to shame. I'll say I think Tory's 15. Uh, I think, though, that I would disagree with what John just said about saying, well, he says it with great glumness because the country hasn't changed and the sun still dominates. The Tories won't have won. They'll have won on, you know, 35 36%, much the same as Blair got last time. But against them will be a pretty united majority of people who didn't vote for them because they really didn't agree with them, which wasn't the case when you had it split between Lib Dem and Tories against Blair last time. So I think that the country is not conservative. I think about a third of it is conservative. And we are going to see something quite explosive of people who are very positively not voting conservative, ending up with a conservative government because, as Andrew said, our monstrous electoral system. And I hope there's a revolution. But we will see because, I mean, normally by this stage of the campaign, about 10% of the electorate are telling pollsters that they're undecided. It's much higher in this election campaign. <coughs> I think it's about 30% at the moment, which I think you know, captures a general mood among a lot of the country. They're really not convinced Labour should win it, but they're really not convinced either they should hand it to the Tories. And it does really mean in the last 48 hours or so of this campaign, things could happen, quite important things, that the pollsters will find very hard to capture because they're very, it's difficult for them to capture late swings. The other thing I say to you is the newspapers, although they try and extrapolate national opinion polls and national swings, it doesn't really work anymore, especially because it's such a three-horse race. And very different things will be happening in different parts of the country, depending on what region you're in and what sort of seat <coughs> you live in. Well, we'll interpret that as um, Andrew saying that the Conservatives will be 15 seats short of a majority on Friday morning. Um, but can we have a show of hands um, from people here in the um, audience? Um, who thinks the Blues are going to get home and get that magic 326, get a majority? I'd say it's about a third agreed with that. Do you think, Legra? Yeah. Can we ask the guy whose hand went up first why? Hi, yes. Uh, yesterday evening, watching um, BBC News 24, they, they cut around between the three leaders and... I think that David Cameron looked like he was having a, a real connection with the people he was speaking to. He was, he was sleeves up, he was relaxed, shirts opened. He was talking in a very aspirational but relaxed way. He'd, he'd lost... Were you already persuaded by him? Or did no, that... I'm, I'm not persuaded by him at all, but I think that the country will be... Does anyone be want to be careful? Case... About 22% of the country will be, to echo Polly's point. Does anyone want to put the case for the other side? He, he, David Cameron will fall short, and why? At the front? Um, they were starting from such a low point from the 2005 election anyway that it was always going to be an almost impossible task for them to get an overall majority this time. With the potential Lib Dem surge, the Lib Dems are going to possibly take seats such as Oliver Letwin's so that means they have to encroach into more Labour seats in the north, which I just don't believe they're going to be able to do. No, that gentleman makes What's a top, top point, because actually to get a majority of one, the Conservatives have to 
win 117 seats. And they have to have bigger swing to them since 1945, bigger even than Margaret Thatcher managed in 1979 with the help of the winter of discontent. And you make a very good point about the Liberal Democrats. The Conservatives have thought they got 23 seats, Lib Dem seats, basically in the bag. You'll notice Ipsos Mori keep doing a marginal poll, uh, which claims to predict what's going to happen. In fact, programmed into that poll is an assumption the Tories will win those 23 Lib Dem seats, which even the Tories themselves don't think they'll win there. In fact, the Libs may, depending sometimes whether Labour voters are intelligent in these seats where they're candidates third, the Lib Dems may actually take some seats off the Conservatives, which makes it all that much harder because they have to win even more seats from Labour. Andrew, can I dra drag you away from sophology and into what we will actually see before possibly Saturday morning arrives, in this instance where sure. you two are agreeing that you think it could be short of and a clear win. Yeah. What's the choreography? Who says what? I mean, the, in the paper this morning, we had my colleague, our colleague Nick Watt talking about reporting that the Tories are not going to accept the constitutional fact that... Gordon well, Brown stays as Prime Minister. Well, well, we'll have to accept it unless David Cameron and the Shadow Cabinet are going to go and storm Buckingham <laughs> Palace and take the Queen hostage. I mean, it's actually quite a sense... It, it's a sort of sensible convention that the sitting Prime Minister, even if Gordon Brown comes third, the sitting Prime Minister sits there until he resigns, and he's not really supposed to resign until it's clear that a different leader can command a parliamentary majority. Now, why is that sensible? And Gordon Brown may have to sit there even if he doesn't want to squat and barricade himself in with Ed Balls into number 10. Uh, it's actually sensible because if he resigns before it's clear whether somebody else in a hung parliament can form a government, you ain't got a government. Now, some people say we do quite well without a government, but you do, you do actually have to have some guys in charge. And that's why we actually have this quite sensible convention that now goes back over 100 years, which Gus Donald, the cabinet secretary, has been refining uh, in case this happens so that you've always got somebody who's prime minister. That's the point of it. And, John, a progressive realignment or is it just a mess? What are we going to see if there's a parliament? God, what a question. Well, the numbers suggest that, as my colleague Martin Kettle put it the other week, there is a very fair chance, and it's kicking in already, really, of the Labour Party facing what you might call an existential crisis. I've really... Wondering what it's here to do, but also having to look at, uh, at what the country has said and understand that there is a challenger for being the leading progressive voice. Mm. And that's a huge, huge issue for Labour Party people. I mean, it's self-evident. Those of us who sort of hang around the Labour Party and the Labour movement who've been talking for a few years about the new pluralistic reality of progressive politics and all of that, that seems stark, staringly obvious. But kind of for people in the Labour Party, it really isn't. I mean, I mean look at the contortions that, that even people who aren't in high office in the Labour Party have, have gone through about advising people like me who live in Lib Dem Tory marginals that if you don't want a Tory to be let in, you might have to vote Lib Dem. I mean, to a lot of Labour people, that sounds like having to run a marathon. I mean, the most sort of mind-bogglingly arduous, challenging thing that they, they, the they can say. But it is on the move. But I think my fear about parts of the Labour Party is that in response to that existential crisis, which, which can only be resolved by reaching out and understanding they're not the only game in town, would be to actually to dig in. And if you look at a lot of the elements that have become powerful under Brown's watch, people around Brown and some of the, uh, and, and some of the people closely associated with him, you know, they ain't the world's greatest pluralists, shall we say. Except, let me report from the, from the battle bus today. There was Ed Balls on the first leg ah. of today's journey. A tribalist in most A tribalist. Book. He is the man who was single-handedly responsible for the cabinet not in time passing uh, a law that would say there will be a referendum, at least on AV. Uh, Gordon Brown had announced it in the conference in October. 
They could have got it through before the election, and he was the one uh, leading the, the faction that was most reactionary, determined to have as little change as possible, adamantly anti-reform. Suddenly, there he was, repeating what he'd said in the New Statesman, uh, bite your lip. Vote Labour if you're Lib Dem, and I'm, by implication, vote I'm, intelligently if you're Labour too. So why, Polly? Why? Polly, Polly why? You saw him. Did he, what did he say? But, well, I, and, I, and, I, and I asked him. I said, "But this, this is extraordinary." He said, "No, we. Uh, I really think that uh, the time has come where we have to think very carefully about keeping the Conservatives out." I mean, the tragedy is, though, this is such a deathbed conversion by the Labour Party. I mean, the real mistake was not to have changed the electoral system in the first term, when they could have done it from a position of strength, from the moral high ground. Tony Blair, as I think he was at least half-minded to, and other people were even more minded to, could have said, look, I just want this stonking 179 parliamentary majority. But despite that, I think it's the wrong system. It's not a fair system. And at that point, I think the Lib Dems would have bitten his hand off if he'd offered them AV, even though it's not strictly a proportional system. But instead, they've had to wait all this time. And for a fourth election in a row, Labour wants to borrow some Liberal votes. And, you know, some Liberals who'd lent them the votes in the past may be a bit reluctant to do so this time, even if it makes sense to do so because they've been let down in the past. Partly because they don't want Gordon Brown. It was Gordon Brown, yeah. Jack Straw and John Prescott, and John Prescott yeah. who were uh, the ones who faced down Brown and said, don't you go near Ashdown, don't make any deals. And he backed off at that point. Yeah. And so there are very good reasons why Lib Dems feel particularly viscerally anti-Gordon Brown. And it's a great problem because here is a majority of the country that wants a Lib Lab coalition. If, you, if that was on the ticket, they'd vote for it. But... There's Gordon Brown, who stands as the blockage in the way. Polly, this paper has done a lot to encourage a Lib Lab coalition, or maybe even just the Lib government, by endorsing them on Saturday. What did you think of that? Well, I think it was very hard, because we had said very firmly, Gordon Brown must go. So it was quite hard then for the editor to turn around and say, oh, and by the way, vote for him nonetheless. But on the other hand, and because it's, it's a messy answer, but we're in a very messy situation there is no good, easy option as to what to vote for. Uh, if you want a Lib Dab Lab coalition, all you can do is bite your lip, hold your nose, put a nose peg on. Have you yeah. still got any of those nose pegs <laughs> left? I have plenty <laughs> left. I have plenty left if people want nose pegs, double nose pegs this time, uh, to vote for the anti-conservative. But then it's a question of saying, well, we'll have to see what happens after that. I mean, I don't think Brown could possibly be Prime Minister. There, Will Hutton, the Honourable, the splendid Will Hutton, suggested that Clegg should be Prime yeah. Minister, but there isn't a mechanism well, yeah, really by there, which There was that a very happen. interesting piece in a newspaper which will remain nameless by Matthew Dancona, who's not usually a political bedfellow. Sunday Telegraph. Like no, it was in the, <laughs> in the standard, oh, actually. <laughs> so I didn't have to, you know... The standard's morally neutral now because I don't have to pay for it. Um, <laughs> in which he said that one of, the, one of the ways the debates had so skewed or completely altered our understanding of politics and political possibility was the idea of someone becoming the Prime Minister after a campaign which is completely defined by them who hasn't been in the debates is extremely problematic. And we have to bear that in mind. A Lib, I'm in favour of a, of a Labour Lib Dem coalition, but if you think that David Miliband could, or say it was David Miliband, could suddenly sweep into the foreground and say, I shall be Prime Minister now, when the campaign has been defined by those, by those three occasions, you're, you're, on a, you're in a pretty awkward place. You know? Can I just ask you, Andrew, what do you think Clegg's game is? Because I think it's fair to say he's been giving some slightly contradictory 
messages to different newspapers. There's some stuff about progressive alliances in The Guardian on Saturday. Today's FT is oh. all about leaving the, um, leaving the door open to the Tories. No, if he possibly can, he shouldn't get too uh, entangled in all this terms and conditions stuff, partly because he just doesn't know what will face him on May the 7th any more than anybody else does. And secondly, it would be fairly deadly for the Lib Dems, who've run this quite well as a capturing a people's revolt against establishment politics. It'd be very bad news for them if people began to think it's really all about how many Lib Dem bottoms end up in the back of ministerial limousines. They don't want it to become about that. There is a question, actually, about the Libs, whether this is a, just a, a one-stage or a two-stage business for them. I mean, if their historic ambition is to replace Labour uh, as the principal mm. progressive party, in other words, reverse what happened about a century ago when Labour replaced the Liberals, then the Liberals would probably be best served, obviously hoping to come second in this election, push Labour into third, but not actually being in government with anybody and maybe looking on in a minority or small majority conservative government rapidly getting unpopular as it implemented cuts whilst the Labour Party if it reverts to its unfortunate historic type tears the guts out of each other and leaves the Libs actually rather well placed for a second election so a lot of Lib Dems may be secretly privately thinking actually it's nothing no by means all over for us at all on May the 7th and if we've ended up with 90 to 100 seats out of this we'll be jolly pleased with it and looking for what happens at the election on from that. Is that what explains why Clegg will never endorse tactical voting? We asked him about it in the interview. Well the other question I mean there is a real... Nick, what, why, why not? Well, Nick, what about Nick Clegg and tactical voting? I've encountered Liberal Democrats on this tour I've been doing around the country, and I quite like a lot of them, and I share a lot of their politics in common, but what I cannot cope with in the case of a lot of Liberal Democrats is this absolutely awful piety that a lot of them have. And they haven't got... They've got no more to be pious about than most other politicians, and this comes up when you mention tactical voting. And they say, oh, we're on the righteous path, in as many words, and they say, we're not going to endorse tactical voting. Yeah. You must vote with, your, vote with your heart. Vote for what you believe in. And I live in a Lib Dem Tory marginal, and the third leaflet that week pops through the door with a little bar chart saying Tories can't win here, uh, Labour can't win here, sorry. Oh, what on earth does that mean? Across the country, for years, and this goes on, they have based their appeal to people like me on tactical voting, and that goes on. And for Clegg to stand there and say I'm not in favour of it is mendacious beyond words, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, can, can we ask some of you what you thought of our editorial, The Guardian and The Observer editorial, actually? Can we just pass the mic along and then... Good, we bad, well written. Bad, dreadful. Um, we've come all the way from Wales tonight to, uh, to listen to this debate. You've come from Wales? Yes, Why we have. So we, uh, I've been, you know, fans of Polly and Andrew. They were my sort of heroes. Tarnished, tarnished, I'm afraid to say. Um, it, it confuses me. I'm oh really, really confused because, you know, I've read probably everything you've written for the last... Well, I'm, you know, I could go back 50 years, but you probably haven't been writing for 50 years. Not but quite. I'm, I'm really confused because I can't find anything to support this wonderful Nick Clegg that suddenly appeared and everybody, we've all had a, you know, a Damascus moment. You know, what your point is you've not read any of mine. Oh, I have, John. <laughs> yes, I have. Anyone I else? Think, and I, I don't think I've endorsed, I have not endorsed uh, the idea that we should be Lib Dem. And we, have, we are, luckily, in The Guardian, an enormous, and in The Observer, huge rainbow alliance. We have re, you know, columnists who write very different things. You know, you've got Simon Jenkins, you've got Julian Glover, you've got George Monbiot, you've got Seamus Melm, you've got me, you've got Jackie, uh, you know, and then on The Observer also has quite, quite a range. And so we have never been obliged to speak with the editor's voice. The editor speaks with his own voice. 
I do not think I have ever written an article saying it would be a good idea to vote Lib Dem. What I do write every time is vote anti-Tory where you are. Can, can anyone else, would anyone else like to make the case the other way around? I think it was the right thing to do to just not get too bogged down in all the tactical voting and just say, yeah, uh, on principle this time it's right to go the Lib Dems. Oh, oh good. Oh, a Lib Dem. There we have one. <laughs> <coughs> I, th I think I'd probably say what kept you. Uh, if you look at the things The Guardian have been talking about for years, and I, I must admit, I'm like the lady back there, I've been reading The Guardian for a while, don't necessarily agree with everything, but Iraq, uh, social justice, AV, and, and how appalling it is as a, uh, uh, as a replacement for the current first-past-the-post system, uh, I think The Guardian should have been Lib Dem maybe a year or two ago. And I, I, I'm a little bit annoyed, I suppose, with it, because it just feels like a, oh, look, he's finally doing well in the polls. We can, we can finally come out and support him. But it, OK, we've got one more person here who wants to weigh in. Um, I think the point was made in your editorial that The Guardian and The Observer have been passionate supporters of electoral reform for over a century. And ultimately, this election is about electoral reform. That's what, what we've all been talking about today. And I think that, that, that's why it was so important that The, that the Guardian came out and, and fully supported the Lib Dems. OK. I mean, divided loyalties, there's divided loyalties on the staff as well. But isn't the real problem here, Polly, for anyone who's still solidly in the, in the Labour camp, like the people were up there, that during the last two, three, four, maybe even five years, Labour hasn't made any kind of a distinctively progressive case. It's all about triangulating with the Tories. I think it's been very difficult for time for Labour supporters. I think that, uh, as you say, triangulation all the time, the, the <coughs> zigzagging around, and so that you'll have Gordon Brown making sort of terrific uh, gesture uh, in the right direction, and then suddenly, you know, he'll, he'll abolish the 10p tax so as to benefit people in the middle. Well, that's a very Lib Dem policy. <coughs> you know, Lib Dem's tax policy is to benefit the people in the middle and does nothing for the, for the bottom two deciles. Um, I think that if you look at Labour and, and Lib Dems and put them together, there is as much difference within each party. Lib Dems have their far left and their far right orange book people, and Labour too. There is more difference between people within those parties than there is between the collectivity of the two parties. I don't see the difference. They're forced to fight by the system, but I don't see great difference, really. That's a no. Well, we're going to move from the national to the local. And we're here in London today, of course, but we found that in Birmingham and in Manchester, every city has its own issues. And, of course, the capital is no different at all, as Dave Hill, who's our London blogger, knows only too well. How will the election turn out in London? There are 73 constituencies being battled over here, 20 or so on a knife edge, real marginals, including the one I'm in now, which is Westminster North. In this area of London in particular, London in general for that matter, but this is a very good example of it, there's a tremendous amount of housing need. The local council, Conservative run, does have quite big ambitions for regenerating some of the 1930s estates, but there's a big political argument about what form that regeneration should take. Are you a local resident? That's the question. I am. You are. Can I talk to you? Can we talk to you? Okay. Right. Tell us what you think. I'm voting for Karen Buck because I love her, but I am not voting for Labour on the big one. When Maggie Thatcher got in, I voted Conservative because she let me buy my council house. I think we need someone like her to get back in who can put their foot down and be strong. 
This thing about housing, there's a lot of people... My pe- children, yeah. my daughters, have had to move out to Bromley and get private houses because they won't get a flat round here. Leaving Church Street Market and uh, heading up the road towards the uh, campaign headquarters of Karen Buck, who is the Labour candidate here, you are very struck by the range, the variety of different kinds of housing there is here. Look down a side street and you will see a tower block, but also as you go through Maida Vale, these big cream-coloured, beautiful terraces that look like big, fat, luxurious wedges of wedding cake. Housing is a really big issue in this constituency and Karen Buck has very strong views about it. We need to buy more homes on the open market to meet needs and we need to be building more homes, some of which should be for affordable uh, purchase, absolutely, but the, the biggest demand is for secure, affordable homes to rent. Now here's a dimwit question. There's a limited amount of space. People don't want to necessarily go upwards. How are you going to build them all? No, well, yeah, that is a circle that is impossible to square, I and mean, I think it's absolutely right. You are not going to be able to provide everybody with uh, the kind of home uh, that, that you know is, is the, 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 the typical demand, the house with, with the garden. On the other hand, you can do a ma- imaginative density, high-density developments if the inside space standards are better. You need to make homes bigger uh, inside. You need to improve communal space, so good, well-supervised, safe play areas, for example, for children. Uh, can, you know, don't have to necessarily be an individual garden. You provide that. We should be looking at extensions, loft conversions, making use of the space that we've got. So that's one side of the argument. I'm sure if Joanne Cash, who's the Conservative candidate here, had been able to accommodate us today, she would have faithfully expressed the uh, Tory view about how to get more homes built, which is to say that you need fewer targets, more freedom for local authorities and more incentives for local authorities to work with developers. My view? Well, I don't think Labour have done particularly well the last 13 years. Would the Conservatives do better? I think it's rather difficult to tell. I think if I was a voter here, I'd be a bit worried about that. Um, John, you've been all around the country. Um, Do you think housing is one of those issues that you're hearing about much more when you're in the South? That you hear much more about? Mm. What, in the South, it's a particularly big issue? Obviously, you hear about it absolutely everywhere. And um, one of the more dispiriting aspects of this campaign is, is on the few occasions it's sort of intruded on the debate. And we haven't been talking about who's going to co- go into coalition with who and the distinction between more seats and more votes and all of this. I mean, that's been one of the real kind of pains of this campaign, I think, is that issues have been crowded out by a, a lot of sort of sophological tomfoolery. But housing is, is hugely important. It's hugely important everywhere you go. But it's hugely important chiefly, I think, because the, the lack of social housing and the fact that it's only a matter of, what, three or four years before there'll be five million people on the social housing waiting list. And it crops up in the strangest places. When we were in, um, in the Lake District, in Ambleside, which is a very, very idyllic place where most people tend to go to buy ordnance survey maps and stout climbing boots, the, the Lib Dem MP I mentioned earlier on, Tim Farron, he was talking about the fact that there are a lot of families, maybe of five or six, living in two-bedroom flats above shops in Ambleside because there are no council houses. It's huge. And then you go into the affluent south. I was in Southampton the other day in an area called Thornhill. And again, the same thing. You hear stories of families of six living in two-bedroom flats. And one of, the, one of the problems, one of the big issues that we have to talk about is why social housing is being built in sufficient numbers. One of the reasons for that is because local councils haven't got the kind of financing-raising powers that would allow council houses to be built. But you don't hear that stuff. Whenever you ask a front-rank politician about it, they always talk about help for first-time buyers. Well, that's all very well, but help for first-time buyers has not got anything near the urgency of building the millions of social-rented homes that this country needs. 
Polly, the view from Brown's battle bus, does he talk about housing ever? He did. It was the first thing he talked about most of all when he first came, moved into number 10. Do you remember? Housing, housing, housing. Mm. And then when time the, ago, though. I know, and then the crash hit and it stopped. I mean, housing is the great market failure. If you think about it, it is quite extraordinary that at the time of the biggest housing boom ever, when you really think you couldn't lose as a property developer, the developers themselves were building less than ever before. They were sitting on the land, they were saying, I'll appreciate more if we don't build. Uh, it, it's quite an... You know, and, and after all, the, 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 the cost of, of, of labour was very low. cost of labour didn't go up. There was no reason for them not to. But have you heard him talk about it this election? Not at all. Uh, well, I've heard him talk about it, and he's basically talked about it as one thing in line for a cut if he's returned to government, yes. which will be true of all of them, I'm afraid. I mean, there will be no social housing built by whoever's in power, because... It will be a low priority and they won't spend the money. Um, there was a great moment, I think it was in the third leaders' debate, where a woman questioner who remarkably said she was a chartered accountant and nevertheless said she and her partner could not afford to buy a house because house prices mm -hmm. were so high. And I was just waiting to see if any one of the three leaders would um, win some credit for bravery by saying, well, of course you're right, house prices should come down. Guess what? Not one of them did. <laughs> As Andrew says, um, I mean, it was in the Jeremy Paxman interview, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Brown, actually, we've, we've spent so long trying to move forward on what's going to be cut debate. And then in that interview, he said, yeah, two things, housing and the other thing was transport. The Guardian Daily's John Dennis went out to the streets of London because transport, of course, is another huge issue for London voters. And he went to see what the politicians and the pundits thought needed to change. I'm finding it difficult. <laughs> Closure. It's my first time down here, so I'm kind of lost a little, so we're just trying to find out where to go. I've just come on the train from Poland, and it's been brilliant until I got to London. So maybe rather than keep thinking about Heathrow all the time, maybe they should start to think about the whole public transport system. I'm at Crystal Palace Station in South London with Val Shawcross, Labour's transport spokeswoman at the London Assembly and currently fighting the Lib Dems' Simon Hughes for the parliamentary seat of Bermondsey and Old Southwark. Um, Val, what do you think the transport issues facing London are? Well, the population's growing in London as a whole and we have severe congestion on quite a few of our modes of transport, the trains in particular. And I think that we do need to see continued long-term investment in, in public transport. This is a particularly good place to be, of course, because the East London line, uh, which is starting shortly, uh, will have a branch that will come to Crystal Palace. You talk about massive long-term investment. Um, Crossrail will cost billions and billions. What difference will that make to Londoners? Well, Crossrail, fantastic east-west route. It'd be about 10% of our transport capacity if it happens. We all know there are huge cuts in public spending coming, that Crossrail would be a candidate for the axe. Absolutely not. We're, we're determined in the Labour Party that we will put Crossrail in. It's been stalled too often. Uh, the funding is already in place. And if we are serious about fighting the recession positively, here are uh, jobs in construction as well as more jobs and homes uh, potentially for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, planned engineering works are taking place this weekend on the following London underground lines. On my way now, back into central London... Everyone wants a good transport system in the capital, but will it affect votes? One thing's for sure, people do care about it. I think it's an absolute ridiculous mess. 
every weekend there's always park closures or bus re- rail replacement services. As regards to rail fares, I think the price pre-930 is, is, is dreadful. What about Crossrail? That's the train link between West yeah, and East it's London. It's a very good idea. It's going to cost a fortune. You know, It's been going on for about 10 years, isn't it? I'm outside Tottenham Court Road tube station with Caroline Pidgeon, chair of the London Assembly's Transport Committee and the Liberal Democrat candidate for Vauxhall. We're looking out onto Tottenham Court Road tube station. It's a building site at the moment, isn't it? What's it going to look like? Well, it is. It's a huge um, building site and there's a number of places across London like this at the moment with the infrastructure being put in for um, Crossrail. It'll be a fantastic, you know, modern, state-of-the-art station. Now, the Liberal Democrats are talking about shifting spending from roads to rail. Will that work? Well, what we want to do is we would take money out of um, the major road building fund and we'd put that into opening up some disused rail lines across the country and investing in trains. I mean, more and more people are using trains. We want to see high-speed rail built as soon as possible so that we can get some of these short-haul flights out of the sky and get people using rail in this country. Andrew? I'd say about transport generally, it has been... One of the strategic failures of not only this Labour government but of British governments for decades of both stripes, this country has been crying out for the sort of superb high-speed trains you get in France, Spain, Italy, Germany. Um, Tony Blair basically had a very fatalistic attitude towards transport. I remember one member of the Cabinet uh, telling me that Blair once said to him, don't bother with the railways, there's just nothing that can be done about them. And I think there was particularly a problem with the new Labour culture that thought about the next day or next week's headlines. Transport projects, by their nature, don't start to show a dividend. People don't start travelling on the trains for four or five years later. So Labour wasted a lot of time trying to make workable a basically unworkable, useless privatised structure inherited from the Tories. And now, yet again, both they and the Tories have had deathbed conversions to the idea (coughs) of high-speed rail, which I'm all in favour of. I just wish we'd started on it 20 years ago. Another missed opportunity, Polly? <laughs> well, um, my doubts about Crossrail. I think it's uh, a bit of a vanity project. It's fantastically expensive. It will only most be used by really pretty wealthy people going in and out of the city and from sort of the posher west, western suburbs and west, uh, west of London. And um, the thing is that, you know, there are only about 4% of people actually commute by rail buses are what most people use well, the great thing that Ken Livingston did in London was make the buses uh, really effective so that they really turn up there are lots of them, they're comfortable and they're much much cheaper they're just not glamorous things for politicians to do, it's not a legacy I've got lots more buses but, uh, so they all want to have huge vanity rail projects I don't know that we, it really helps to get to, the, to Scotland that much quicker uh, on a very expensive train. I think what people need in each conurbation is bus services or light rail systems that work really well for getting people in and out quite reasonably locally, not these glamorous long-distance journeys. Scratched up your face, John. Why? Oh, only because I do think, actually, uh, the fairly decrepit, as Andrew says, relative to mainland Europe, state of our railway system in particular, is a sort of running national sore. I speak as someone who moved out of London about six or seven years ago, and then put my entire life at the mercy of First Great Western. Our friends from <laughs> Wales might understand the pain that I am expressing here. Um, 
you know, and the fact that I don't want to, I don't want to, well, I don't want to be. It's not how most people live to work along, to live along. It's not about necessarily where where you work. It's about visiting your parents. It's about being having the kind of life. If you go to Germany, for example, on a Sunday, when for some reason in Britain there's about a tenth of the trains there are in the week. If you go to Germany on a Sunday, people do travel fairly long distances to go and have Sunday lunch with their relatives and so on. And that's a that's a kind of life that we're completely deprived of. And then people like me end up. If I want to go and see my relatives in Scotland, for example, I have to give my money to that. Unpleasant fellow who runs Ryanair or Stelios EasyJet. And it's a com- I mean, I went to Newcastle Airport on this tour I've been doing recently. The only airport I've ever been that's got a betting shop in it. It really wasn't. <laughs> Do you bet on whether the plane's going to Exactly. Get how, much, how much Ryanair are going to charge you to have a wee? But um, I would much rather have made that journey by train. And I, in the ideal world, it would have taken me about two hours. And on the continent, an equivalent journey would take me that long. And it would probably cost me about 15 or 20 quid. In this country, if I travelled before 9 a.m., it would cost me about 200 pounds. And it would take me far longer than it does there. That's a huge problem. But my, you know, one of the reasons I'm feeling sort of crestfallen and maudlin at the moment is, given the state of the public finances, Lord Adonis, who again is part of this great deathbed conversion by the Labour Party to interesting He's aspects of politics. No, no, but in the same way. Oh, no, he was SDP. Right at, He's been, he was no, I mean SDP. to interest the, the fact that the government suddenly, in what felt like the last six weeks of its life, it was like a drunk getting three pints in just before last order. <laughs> so you got this great, you got this great flurry of stuff: the equality bill, the 50p top rate of tax, and you got a transport minister who actually seemed to know a great deal about the railways and be extremely passionate about it. I was extremely relieved because it meant no more evangelical car dealers, as far as I could tell, opening up <laughs> schools. It had all sorts of upsides, but that was right at the end. Public money's run out, and when I hear politicians in the course of the campaign talking about this great high-speed rail future. It's not that I don't want it to happen, but, you know, we haven't got the money. Can I just um, pull you back from that a second? And you sat me down when I suggested housing might be more of an issue in the South. As you've been going around... No, I mean, it's an issue everywhere. It probably is more of an issue in the South, but that isn't to say it's not an issue in all kinds of places. But, I mean, are you feeling like, having been on on, on the grand tour, that there is one uh, election going on or that there's a number of different elections? Do you think we're going to get radically different results in different places? What a question. It's the main thing that I've felt, and I think this partly explains the Clegg bounce, is that what the recession has done is really pointed up the fact that, and this is partly due to our electoral system and the fact it focuses so much attention on supposedly affluent areas, the actual way that people live over the last 15 or 20 years hasn't been reflected in the way that they hear politicians talk. So when you go to, to a place like Brown's constituency, actually, Coddy and Cowden Beach, still... That place is completely defined by deindustrialization. And the idea that Asda can pitch up or you'll get a branch of KFC or a call centre and that'll somehow make it okay doesn't wash. It never did wash. And obviously now Asda maybe is still going, but there's a lot of retail businesses have closed. Maybe the call centre's closed down. And people don't see that reflected in the way that politicians talk. And they want life explaining to them. You know, here's why your communities change like this. You know, this is why immigration is such a huge white hot issue because no politician has ever bothered to explain it to people. And as a consequence of that, I think the first friendly face who came along and cracked a slightly more kind of humble face and gave the impression he would listen to people, people would buy into that. Because it didn't sound arrogant and haughty, and it wasn't Tony Blair lecturing people and, and saying, here's globalisation, get with it or die. And I think that's really the underlying story of this election. Whether that disconnect is going to be repaired, I don't know. But I certainly do feel that in this election, as with other elections, there are two elections going on. Because one is about... The issues actually drive people to the polling station, and the other one is about what politicians talk about, and they still remain extremely different. 
And I think there's a, I wrote down there's a, what Gordon yeah. Brown actually said today, talking to a group of uh, students in an FE college, a lot of uh, apprentices and things, and talking exactly about, it was meant to be talking exactly about what you're saying about deindustrialization. He said, we are going to have a low-carbon, knowledge-intensive digital economy. <laughs> and he thought, what? Well, you know, those may be good things, but it's not exactly a way of explaining what you're saying and what people need. Total lack of connection. I've seen, I've seen the, the low-carbon knowledge-intensive economy in Brown's constituency, right? It's one little office on the John Smith Industrial Estate with a cafe built into it, and believe you me, it's not happening. <laughs> so what we're getting here a little bit is, and the feminists said it first, of course, that the personal is um, political, and I think you could say that with the debates and everything, this has been the campaign to prove that. Now, Andrew here is the world's expert on Mr Brown's psychological flaws, and... Um, I suppose, Andrew, the first thing I want to ask you on Brown himself is whether the country is now seeing the man, the same man that you think you've been seeing for years. Uh, no, I don't think that's entirely fair. I mean, you're quite right to say you know, our politics has been getting more presidential. That process has been going on for a long time. And inevitably, the leaders' debates were going to even further heighten that effect to the point where, and there's some, some things to regret about this, it seems to have been a Clegg versus Cameron versus Brown election. And that didn't actually serve Gordon Brown terribly well. I think Labour thought it had nothing to lose by agreeing to this, but it actually did have some things to lose because Gordon Brown, rightly or wrongly, and whatever his other qualities, is not a liked leader. Voters do not like him. And so putting even more, investing even more weight on him was strategically, in election terms, perhaps not a very good idea for Labour. I mean, the sadness is I'm not sure we have really seen the real Gordon Brown in the round at all, both for the, the flaws, which indeed I do point out in the end of the party, but also the virtues, which I also point out there. I mean, the public rituals of electioneering, he's clearly utterly uncomfortable with, and the one thing to be said in his favour is that he looks completely uncomfortable. I mean, he's absolutely hopeless <laughs> of faking it. Um, he's also, I mean, that struck me with the whole Mrs Duffy episode, where I thought well, Mrs Duffy was not really the trickiest customer you any politician's ever met on the campaign trail. In fact, at the end, she patted him on the hand, said she was going to vote Labour, Gordon, don't worry, don't worry. And he gets into the back of the car and says, oh, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. <laughs> it's the worst thing that ever happened. So that was a terribly self-inflicted humiliation. People who, who saw him speak the other day when he really ripped out passionately uh, were talking about a Gordon Brown unplugged and a lot of writers in The Guardian and elsewhere saying they wish they'd seen a lot more of that Gordon Brown, the Gordon Brown of old who could rouse believers, though whether that has so much reach across to the unconverted is uh, not so sure. But he was always, I'm afraid, going to be disadvantaged by this style of election because he's not a personality comfortable with modern electioneering. In say, the 19th century, he would be fine, but he's just not. I was at the Citizens UK event yesterday and he gave an amazing... That's the one I was referring to. Absolutely amazing performance. How many of you sort of think that he has the character that we need right now? How many of you think that there we are, straight up, white shirt? Can we ask you why? Uh, I've never, never disagreed with anything he's done, I don't think. I've... Did anyone want to make the case that Brown was the, the, the wrong man? He was not never going to win this election and uh, his personality is part of the problem. Oh, we do have one here. Good. Uh, I think it's tragic, really, because he's obviously a very gifted, talented, committed person, but he's not comfortable in his own skin. Andrew said he's not comfortable in broadcasting. He doesn't strike me as being comfortable in his own skin. It feels like Peter Principle. He was fine in the Treasury. 
and he wasn't designed to be Prime Minister. And I feel it's really, really tragic. Um, he reminds me a bit of Richard Nixon, actually. Ooh, blimey. I know. Without, not for politics. Not for criminal bits. Not for politics and not for criminal I mean, even bits. I wouldn't say that about Gordon Brown. Uh, no, no, no. I, I think you were on to something. And because I've also, Gordon was a very odd mixture. I mean, there's a side of him that's very intellectually self confident. And I, I mean, one of the things I give him a lot of credit for is how he acted. And he acted before Europe or the Americans were signed up to doing it, to recapitalising the banks, which did save us from the complete horror of none of the cash machines working. So there's that intellectually self confident side of him. But there's another side that's seems to me crippled by a lack of self-confidence, which may explain in part at least these volcanic temper explosions and why, you know, when you've had a slightly awkward but not that catastrophic encounter with a voter, it sends you into complete meltdown in the back of your limousine. But Polly, the Polly can... is why he ever thought that this was the job for him. Uh, you know, he is extraordinarily resilient. He has a rhinoceros skin, but he seems to be impervious to uh, 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 any kind of understanding of what the job requires. And I, that's what I find extraordinary. I mean, as you say, Peter Principle, if he'd said, I'm going to be the great Chancellor, I am going to stay here, I know this is the job for me, I don't mind who else takes over, but that's my reputation. I'll be the longest-serving Chancellor ever. Were you then right for him to, to call for him to go a year ago? Oh, we'd be in a very different place now. If almost any other member, almost, not quite, any other member of the Cabinet were leader well, now. Not Bob Ainsworth, you're no. not saying. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to name names. But, um, or possibly not Ed Pauls, uh, who, is only a, who is only a junior version and clone, I'm afraid, of... of Mini-me. Mini-me of, 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 of Gordon Brown. But I do, I, I do think people who are, uh, don't, are definitely not conservative uh, but want to see a change... Um, would have been very happy to vote for Labour in uh, constituencies Labour could win um, if it had been you know, another leader who'd been, from the beginning perhaps, pro-PR and uh, more open to more inclusive coalition politics. Why are you wrinkling your nose up, John? Well, because when um, all that brown-must-go thing was, was happening, um, obviously it wasn't hard to see where it was coming from. But the Labour Party's single biggest problem, I would say, that accounts for the, the vast majority of its current predicament, is that a great deal of people have forgotten what the Labour Party is there to do. They don't really have much of an idea. Brown, when he took over, said this party has to have a soul, and he's not done a great job of, of rediscovering it. I mean, that lady down there used the word committed. I know Brown has a passion as regards the developing world and so on that are unquestionable, but as regards a vision of Britain, I'm not sure what he's committed to. Gordon Brown is the king of triangulation who very conveniently defined himself against Gordon Brown in about 2004 and 2005. And he said... Tony, Tony Blair. Against Tony Blair. Against Tony Blair. And, and, and he said two things. He said, a town is more than a marketplace in a couple of speeches. And he also said, I have seen that there is more to public service than the values of markets and exchange. And people like I were stupid enough to go, listen to that, he must be a social democrat, he must be different. And lo and behold, he took over. And as Rory Bremner once said, it was like when your granddad tells you he was making a moon rocket down the garden shed. <laughs> <laughs> and after about six months, you go down the shed to see the moon rocket. And there's nothing there. And that, that really is a, is, is a 
denotes a bigger thing, which is the Labour Party's absence of self-understanding and a coherent philosophy and all of that. And when we get to the aftermath of the election, and I hope sincerely it doesn't result in bloodletting, because I watched it as a teenage Labour activist through the 80s, and it was nightmarish to watch. But nonetheless, the Labour Party has to rediscover a sense of, of what it's there to do. And I actually think, given the wider economic moment that we're still in, the conditions are right for it to do that. And it doesn't mean lurching left and all of those cliches that we hear. What it actually means is coming up with a coherent understanding and a story to tell about the convulsive changes, as I said before, that this country's been through over the last 15 or 20 years and how we make people's lives more pleasant and a bit more understandable and we give people more time and more pleasant working lives and all the rest of it. And when it does that, it might not be scoring 27 or 28% in the polls. Andrew, I think John's certainly saying this is a much wider, much bigger issue, um, as, as, as you concede as well, uh, than Gordon Brown's personality. Mm. If we take the debates, isn't the really interesting thing about them, might be the formatting, the cutting out of audience participation and stuff, that there's been loads and loads of policy that's come up, more policy in a way than I can remember in previous Well, elections. there has and there hasn't. I mean, I'm a great fan of the debates, and now we've had them, don't think we can go away from them. Policy comes up in the sense that, you know, the leaders would stand there and chuck the odd allegation against each other about what their policy was. But I think we missed two things in this election, and it's mainly because the debates have sucked everything else out of the campaign. What you don't get anymore is really fierce scrutiny of a policy by a party <coughs> for a few days to see if it really stands up to examination. We had that in the first week on the national insurance rises with the Tory attack on the jobs cut. And that followed the traditional campaign way of you have two or three days of really fierce heat on a policy and at the end of it, the it's sort of over, the media score it, the voters take a few and we'll move on to another policy area. We haven't had that really uh, because of these debates. So policies were discussed but never really, really drilled down. And I think debates have also taken away from the more rigorous interview formats like the general me Paxman interviews. The second thing that's happened is we haven't had really raw interaction, which I rather enjoy, between voters and politicians. Remember 2005 election, where Tony Blair was getting really bashed about by audiences and he went to things like question time formats and somebody in the audience would say, would you wipe somebody's backside for five pounds an hour, Mr Blair? And I really like it when politicians have to respond to that and they often learn something from having to respond to it. But because of these debates, the questioner just gets to put the question in the and that's it. There's no comeback. David Dimbleby, not his fault, but the rules don't allow him then to go to Mrs. Smith and say, but were you satisfied but, but with their more, answer on immigration or whatever Isn't it, is? it more, Andrew, then, about policy, him saying, you know, Gordon saying, I'm going to keep trying, and, sorry, and, and Nick saying, no, I'm not. They argue about the policy, whereas if it was Sharon Storer going up and shouting at Tony Blair, it's all about personality and how he deals with that situation. Well, I think that, you know, I mean, you get the personality of the Sharon Storer thing, but I mean, there was a really, I mean, I remember going back to the last campaign, there was a really re revealing moment when uh, one woman in a Question Time audience said to Tony Blair, why is it now harder because of your targets to book a, a GP's appointment? And Tony Blair was actually just nonplussed. He hadn't yeah. known this was the consequence of one of his policies. And when you see them arguing about something like Trident, and nobody's mind is actually moving as a result of that, and actually it's not that helpful, because unless you're a great technical expert on nuclear deterrence, you won't be quite sure whether Nick Clegg's slightly cheaper cruise tip version <laughs> of the nuclear deterrent is going to be a better weapon than the big stonking Cold War version. Um, it, so although they have a shout at each other, you don't quite get to a resolution where we as a nation sort of collectively make up our mind we prefer yeah, yeah. his policy to their policy. 
Polly, the view from the battle bus, we've both been on them. I mean, for yes. me, they're just Thursdays gone. It's, uh, it, it, it has gone. I mean, I, I think that what's happened, though, also, is there is much more, uh, uh, there is much more malevolent planning of hits against candidates. It only takes oh, yeah. one person now to go and shout at Gordon Brown. I can't get my kids into the school. Well, he lives near me. It turns out he's, he hadn't even got the results yet of whether his kids got into school. The schools around there are really good. Don't know what he was on about. Um, but he was a show-off. And whether he was a show-off or whether he was paid by somebody to do it, I don't know. But what happens on the battle bus now is you're absolutely not told where you're going next because what happens is that somebody from the Sun will ring uh, someone on a local paper tour or possibly to the Tories directly and they will immediately have people there who will do quick, cheap hits. And it only takes one person to shout... Gordon Brown, my mother's dying. And that will be played on a loop throughout the whole day and nobody will quite know if it's true or not, whatever. And it, it completely destroys the whole campaign. So you need a measure of protection. I think, you know, things like election call, you know, the Belgrano, that was a wonderful incident when Mrs Thatcher was absolutely gone. It needs a measure of moderation so that you get real people, but you also get the pranksters and the show-offs and the, uh, you know, the deliberate... But you, know, you say that, you say that, and of course I understand that the sun will always dispatch someone dressed in a chicken suit to shout obscenities at you and what have you. Sorry. Well, it's not the chicken suits that's scary, it's the ordinary people. But having said there. that, one of, the, one of the things that slightly distresses me about modern politicians, and we've seen this in recent days actually, with this spectacle of people being semi-violently bundled out, when for whatever reason they've got up and shouted at, at, at Gordon Brown, what is the problem? I mean, could not, couldn't he just pause and say, we have someone who wants to make a point, stop, and say, you know, I saw John Major do it. God knows, I never thought I'd be sitting up here bigging up John Major. <laughs> when John Major took his legendary soapbox or whatever it was around the country, that happened a lot. And there's archive footage of John Major, and he would say, the gentleman at the back seems to have a point to make. What do you want to say? And he'd parry the point. And if that's not part and parcel of being a politician, we're in pretty sad shape. Brown and he used to use, yesterday. He and did, and Harold Wilson used to use it greatly, too, because he was pretty quick with it. He'd almost invite... Tory hecklers to have a go because he knew he was quick-witted enough and confident enough that they'd, he'd usually smash them out of sight and then he'd get a great cheer from the large majority of people who in his audience were loyalists. I suppose some of it's security concerns, but it's not just that. It's, uh, and I think some of the politicians are better than this, but they have got convinced by a lot of the people around them, their spin doctors and everybody else who controls the grid, that it's just too dangerous to go into uncontrolled environments. And this has hurt Gordon Brown because, I mean, Gordon Brown's all always been a man who's really, really always wanted an environment he'd be absolutely... It's just part of his personality. He doesn't like environments in which things are not quite in his control and why things in Kansas, like the one with Mrs Duffy, then go completely wrong. Can him. I just ask one final question, because we're almost at the end of the discussion now. Um, we've seen... We've all been discussing all night. It's been a different election with the debates and so on. Lots of us journalists have been saying it's an exciting election. But do you think in terms of the campaign and uh, the progress of it. Have you been enjoying it as much as you did last time? Yeah, I have. I think um, have I enjoyed it more than last time. I think it's been exciting in the horse race sense that the huge unpredictability of it. I think it's exciting, referring back, for instance, to the Observer's leader about this election, there is, depending on the result, obviously, but it is a once-in-a-generation possible opportunity to blow up once and for all this ridiculous voting system. So there's that excitement. I like the excitement of all the parties' grids being completely thrown to the winds. I mean, the Tories really thought, 
well, how difficult, can it, how hard can it be? We've got more cash than you can shake at a non-dom. We're against our grisly gourd. He's presided over the worst recession in the 1930s. It's surely got to be a cruise to Downing Street for Dave. And it's been anything but a, a, a cruise. It's been exciting, whatever you think of Nick Clegg. It's exciting to see him erupting, which took the Lib Dems more by surprise than anybody else, that he should suddenly have these whacking great search. Now, things have been quite exciting as well. The other forces, like, for instance, the right-wing press, who think they can uh, dictate the agenda to everybody else, when Nick Clegg became popular without their permission, they went absolutely bonkers. <laughs> and as he said himself, he went from being Churchill to uh, a Nazi in less than seven days, and yet there was no visible effect of their propagandising. So it's exciting in that sense sense as well. Equally chipper, John? Uh, in the sense that um, the 2001 election, and the 2000, I wrote a book about the 2005 election, which I gather is on sale yeah, in the exactly. foyer. By all means, buy it. It's about the last election. Um, very good. Uh, and that election felt quite exciting in the sense that primarily because of Iraq, Labour's grip on, or new Labour's grip on power was palpably slipping and there was something to be said about giving the government a fright and so on. But by comparison to both of those, 2001, 2005, as Andrew says, just because of this sense that nobody knows what's going to happen, this has been really enjoyable. But I tell you what I have missed is what, as I said before, the, pre the presidential-style debates have crowded out, which is the sense that, at least in some part, this is about really meaty questions of policy. It's not about who's going into coalition with who and whether it's Grizzly Gord or Enthusiastic Nick and all of that. And that is part of, I think, of what makes this election so unreadable, because it is a question. When those third of voters who are undecided go and vote on Thursday, on what basis are they going to be voting? It's an interesting question. When they go to the bonus station, you're going to say, oh, whose policies are you in favour of? I've been asking people this around the country. A lot of people aren't basing how they vote on that. Even they themselves can't tell you. And that's a new kind of campaign. It's maybe a bit more like the kind of campaigns you ordinarily get in the States before you get campaigns like Obama and McCain, where all those much more impressionistic factors come into play. And it's a shame, because I'm one of those old-fashioned creatures who thrives on ideological knockabout, <laughs> and it's a little thin on the ground at the moment. Polly, do you feel like it's been X-Factor all over again? I think it's been great. I think, it's, I think it's, uh, it's really exciting because you do begin to see that people at last understand what the voting system is doing to them. And whereas before it was a very nerdy, dry subject, I think after this it's a really hot subject. And uh, people aren't going to tolerate it when they see, you know, where's my vote? And they see what's happened. There's going to be a great demo on Saturday... Parliament Square after the election if the result has been really disproportionate. hope you'll all be there. But uh, we talked a bit before about scrutiny of policy. I think one reason this time why there hasn't been is because they are all lying to such a degree greater <laughs> than ever before. Uh, I mean, we know, because the IFS is there to do the scrutiny instead of them scrutinising each other, there's almost a kind of standoff because they all know how big and black and deep is the whole that they are not talking about. Well, that is it for this week, and it's the last Politics Weekly under, well, before we have a new government. Thank you to Polly Toynbee, Andrew Ronsley, and John Harris. Michael White will be back with Guardian's Election Daily tomorrow, and of course there will be a stream of updates as the election unfolds at guardian.co.uk, including our Big Results podcast, which will be available for download on Friday. I'm Tom Clark. And I'm Allegra Stratton. Our producer was Francesca Panetta. And so until the new world, goodbye. <laughs>